Hello and welcome to Tank Nuts. My guest today is a former soldier in the Royal Tank Regiment, who upon leaving the armed forces became involved in organised crime, which eventually resulted in imprisonment and a lengthy jail sentence. It's Mr Rich Jones. Hi, Rich. How are you? Hi, there. How are you doing? You okay? You, you were smiling there. Do you, you must have heard this a million times, the sort of intro. And, uh... Yeah, but yours is the best one yet. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> <You're> so <laughs> kind. Rich, we were talking a bit off um, a bit off air there. I haven't seen you for probably, good Lord, I don't know, 30 right. odd years. It's, it's going to be close to 30 years. It's been a long time. You've, not, you've got all your hair. You're so lucky. You yeah, but I look a lot older or something, <laughs> don't I? And I have to say, when I um, when I first come across um, you, we went sort of kept in touch since serving in the army. And... Um, it was it was one of uh, my old army friends one day who said I got a social media message saying uh, have, have you seen this and it was just a link to uh, the local Gazette Bristol Gazette something like that a newspaper link with uh, Rich Jones and all the rest of it about what happened so you've obviously had a hell of a journey Rich um, thanks very much for coming on here and talking about it all um, so I mean let's go back to the start shall we with the armed forces uh, talking yeah. about that we were saying we're all getting a bit hazy about dates and times mm. and what's going on but uh What's your what's your real reason that you joined the army in the first place? Well, the reality of joining for me was probably very similar to a lot of other guys at the time. I mean, I was not very good at being a civilian, so I learned the, the really the, the the difficulties I was facing initially as a seventeen year old was 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 finding a job, something that I could focus on, something I would really enjoy. And back then, you know yourself, back in the eighties, even earlier than those days it was very generic if you're going to be a guy leaving school you're going to be a, a bricklayer or a welder or you're going to have some kind of manual trade and that was all that was really encouraged or offered so and it wasn't really for me so I looked at the options I had at the time and um, they were very thin my father served in the police force he suggested I do not join the <laughs> it's police quite funny when you think about later the irony life. of that <laughs> I know maybe that maybe helped in some ways of how to evade the police <laughs> learned from a young age um, he was working hard and, and he'd met uh, a new a new woman if you like in his life and there was a lot of conflict as me as a 17 year old child and I was a child in my mind um, and my new stepmother and such and we just didn't really connect in the way that we should have done and it was becoming very unstable in the household and to the point where I felt that I just couldn't be in there anymore. And it was no disrespect to my father. It was more of a case of I need to, to be out of this environment because it's not healthy. And I thought, let's just join the army. I didn't really have any idea of what to do. I just thought I need to be not doing this. I just don't want to be in this house anymore, becoming problematic. I was beginning to, some, to get involved in the wrong crowd at a young age as well. And I felt the best thing I can do really is to start looking at making something out of my life. And that's what a lot of us did back in those days. Let's join the army. Let's try and do something positive for life. So I did. Without the intention of getting through, I just thought, I just want to see how it goes. Let's just roll the dice and see where it goes. I didn't even know what regiment to go into. You know, I just thought, let's, let's go. And that was it. I, I just started off into the old careers office in Bristol City Centre. On, I think it was on Colston Street. And I went in and you know, they said, right, this is did the aptitude test. This is what you can do. They gave me a list of various jobs and said the Royal Tank Regiment. I thought, sounds good. And it didn't even dawn on me at the time that my grandfather served in the 44th during the war. So, you know, that automatically, when I made that decision to go for the Tank Regiment for the Armoured Corps, my dad was suddenly proud. He said, oh, well done, son. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to support you 100% on this because your life was going nowhere. You need to you know, focus on this. 
and that's what happened is I just managed to in my best way wing it through the <laughs> various tests at Sutton Coalfield a day and a half there which was my first introduction to sort of being in the army if you like because the first time you're given a Ravalli you know, half five or six in the morning to go and do what used to be an a, I think it was an APFA at the time do a few press ups do a few sit ups a couple of pull ups and you're in aren't you and that was it um, yeah you pass thank you very much and next you know you, you're, you're doing the Oath of Allegiance down in the careers office down there with you reading out your, your oath and uh, you're given your date to start basic up in Catterick and that was really the beginning of that journey you know? and, and I even by that point then I thought am I going to actually get through this basic was brutal back then I mean you, you know yourself you did junior leaders and it, it's a whole different world that you're introduced to it's not it isn't the world that you go into now with basic and I know people have done basic over the last 20-30 years and they said it's it's not like that anymore. So off we went to Catterick. Um, and the thing is, I spent so long with my dad sort of not being proud of me, that making him, and this is kind of something which carried on right away through into my criminality, which I'll, I'll go into at a later point, was I just wanted my dad to be happy and be proud of mm. what I was doing because I, I desperately looked up to him with this. I was so happy that he, his job was a police officer at the time he was in the Sweeney at the same time it was on the TV with you know with, oh wow so you know that was this, these iconic characters on TV my dad was doing that job in real life so what a role model to look up to you know um, so yeah so he saw me off at Temple Mead Station classic case the old trains where you could pull the window down and <laughs> lean out and wave it wasn't romantic but it was certainly one of those moments where my dad was waving off goodbye and you know off I went up to Catterick and um, you can see as you're going up on this journey up through York and up to North Yorkshire that you're picking up these waifs and strays at all these different stations as you're going through and you think they must be going to base. Dressing you know, your best bib and sucker. And, uh, that's yeah, it, you yeah. know, with, with I think we had a bag of limited clothes. It was, yeah. You don't bring it, you won't need anything, just bring some underwear and you, you won't even need socks. That's going to get issued. <laughs> so you're thinking, what, what am I doing? But it's very surreal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then you realise when you get to Darlington train station, and you get off and all these same lads you've seen, all these waifs and strays are getting off at the same stop. You think, well, they clearly must be going to basic. And you get on the back of a Bedford, um, which is what it was. It wasn't even a bus. It was a Bedford at the time. And off we went to Catterick Garrison. And really then, you're in, aren't you? You're... Did you ever think, I mean, like for me, I know when I first joined, you never, when you join the army, you never really think how long you're going to serve. I think most people, you sort of think, I'm going to do me three years or whatever it was, your minimum you could do. And it's just a bit of a, it was on the road to somewhere else, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I, I think I signed for six. And, and the reason for that was higher pay band. Three was le naturally less, wasn't it? Signed for six. So that showed a bit of commitment, I think. Yeah. Maybe subconsciously at the time I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, let's. If I do get through this, if I do get through basic and I get to the regiment, I've signed for six. Maybe anyone's going to think, well, he's not signed for three, so he's obviously half serious about it. He's not signed for nine. You know, scary prospect signing for nine years. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, yeah, you don't visualise an end, do you? You don't see an end. You just you just see the beginning. And you take it one year at a time. Yeah, yeah. One... It's sort of on the road to somewhere else almost. Yeah, yeah, and you don't quite know where it's going to go. You're on that ride, aren't you? There's the, you can't really get off. So you're committed to a, to a point. And and I think that's how I took it. It was just, well, let's just, let's, again, let's just see where it goes. But yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Basic was a massive turnaround for me. It was a huge turnaround in, to, to pass Basic and actually feel... The first, I think that's the first time I felt proud. 
you know, and and to see you, you, the old um, passing out parade when you mm. when you do your eyes right and see your family in the, I think it was called the cow shed, and they're all sat there looking at you and they said <laughs> whatever you do don't look at your family because you'll be able to sort of see them in the peripherals you go past a few times and I already clocked them because my stepman had a bright coloured jacket on the floor that's great I've seen her straight away so I know where my dad is. So we did the sort of eyes right, and we didn't. I clocked my dad, and he was welling up in tears. And I thought, oh, no, don't do that, Dad, because you're going to set me off, but I can't cry because I'm in the army now. And um, that was it, and we finished the pass out parade. Went down and saw me, Dad, and we went down to the, the mess, I think, at the end of that, where you get to have a meet and greet. You actually get to meet your family for the first time after these eight weeks. And he said, you've grown an inch you know, from standing <laughs> straight, from standing tall, from bracing up. He said, you're taller. And and that was really, I, I guess, the first time my dad saw me as someone that he was proud of. And and I think that kind of fueled my ambition a little bit to really push forward a bit more. And from then it was on to training, obviously, for your tank trades. Yeah, so we, would, we, weren't, we didn't even know what trade we were going to have. We were told this, I think, in the last, maybe the last couple of weeks in training, once we'd, once we'd, given our, once we'd done our, um, our drill tests and received our, our berets. And I think after that we were told what trade you're going to do. And I... I'm, I want to be a driver because my granddad was a driver. It didn't do him any good. He got hit, hit by the lamp. He hit a landmine in the end. It's all knacked his leg, lost an arm. He survived, but it, it ruined it. It caused him a lot of disruption and pain for the rest of his life. I want to be a driver. You know, he said, right, Jones, you're going to be a gunner. For oh, great, typical. <laughs> but I didn't mind. I thought it doesn't matter because he didn't know we were going to get to be a crewman when we get to a unit for a gunner okay no problem there and everyone's saying It'd be a gunner it's the best place to be you want to be a gunner get yourself in the turret um, so we did um, gunnery training that's another that's another eight weeks I think I think it was a long time ago yeah do you know I, I was asking the other day about that and I was like you know I generally because it was a bit different like junior leaders were slightly different because we did yeah. you know like 18 months it was like education and that as well but, yeah and we always yeah. knew which trade we were going to be in I think um I think if you went driver DNM, it was six weeks. Gunnery was eight. The reason I think I know this, you do phase one six as well, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we did the phase one six first. Then I did my gunnery training. And the guy that was with us was Ian Hocking. We were in the same intake. He got to do it before us because he was a driver. So me and a chap called Tim Willits, we were on gunnery training with the same group. And um, yeah, so I started gunnery. And it was really interesting because it was all about discipline and you're in the turret now and you're around the commander and everything else and and it was really worrying that you didn't want to get anything wrong in that turret was so and at the time it seemed complex it was a chieftain turret it was you know it was old <laughs> it was rickety and noisy and everything made a lot of noise everything smelt like grease and oil and everywhere you went hurt you everything was sharp and but that was the first time in a turret and getting in the the turret was hard enough initially, and you know, you, in the end you just slide in, don't you? You just you just like a snake down into your gunner's seat. But the first time sat in the gunner's seat, and you're presented with these various sights and components, and you've got this thing called togs here, and, and you don't even know what that is, you just know that it keeps your face warm in the winter. <laughs> um, and it was great, really steep learning curve. They're all different systems, but I loved it. But it was so analogue, because when you're learning in the, the gunnery school, or in, in in the simulator, you've got this little mechanical tank, like it's being wound yeah, along, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it's on a bit of string, and you've got to track this tank, <laughs> and it's going like this. It's not, and you, you could try to track it with your, you've got your dog clutching, and all these are just 
I've not used these phrases in 30 years, coming back to you, like your dog clutching gauge and you're, you're traversing a tank and you're trying to stay on it and you're getting kicked in the back by the gunner instructor. So I'm going, stay on it, stay on it. And it's really difficult. And then you get this weird ellipse when you finally, and, and the whole process was really, then it seemed was so advanced. Because I know the other day we, we recently did like tank fest down at Bournemouth mm -hmm. and they were talking, it's always a bit of a joke when, and uh, Chief, <laughs> funny enough, they do this arena show and Chieftain wasn't on the arena show and because it broke it down, surprise, surprise. <laughs> and they were saying, oh, oh Richard, did you, um, and it's this thing about Chieftain that it's really unreliable. But of course I said that, I said, well, yeah, but we didn't know that. You have to appreciate that it was, I thought this is what every tank was like. I thought yeah. that every time you went out in a tank, it broke down, which is what it did with yeah, Chieftain most of the time, doesn't it? But yeah, 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 and you're right. I'll always remember vividly the first time getting into that, you know, yeah. the gunner's seat. Because you talk about crew position. It is the worst position, isn't it? It's a horrible position. Yeah, it's horrible. You've got no backrest. You, you have got a backrest. It's a stupid little thing that you poke in the floor and turn around, and and your commander's knees are your backrest, aren't they? That's if he's not, if he's of a decent size and he's a decent guy. But if he's if he's a flapper and he's trying to do his job and he's kicking around, and he, he, there's nothing worse than a commander getting back in after he's been tromping around on the, on the wet ground with soaking wet boots. That's all down your back. The gunner was horrendous, but it was the, it was rewarding when you could, if you were a good gunner. And I'd like to think I was a good gunner. You know, I, I, I I demonstrated that on a few occasions where I was a good gunner. You know, but yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, so the trade training was was interesting. You just got to realise that you're not running around and you're in a tank. This is my job. This is going to be my job. And that was great. And then after that, of course, it was a third world tank regiment, of course, which I like to think yeah. was was the best, not that we're biased in any particular way. Absolutely. Or Absolutely. It was the best regiment ever. <laughs> the Armoured Farmers. <laughs> Armoured Farmers. Can't think why we were called that. Yeah. Green Flash. Um, yeah. Third tanks based in Hamer, Darlinghofen, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And again, the, the deployment from the flight, first one being on an aeroplane, flying over oh, from... Yeah. I don't know where we flew from. Probably London. I don't know. I can't remember. We landed into maybe Dusseldorf. I don't know where we landed. I, I can't remember. Um, but all I remember was coming out off of the plane in civvies, I think, and then with your bag, with your, your army kit, your, your, your sausage bag and your, your, your army holdall, and you, you kind of walk out with a few other guys that you've been on the flight with, a fair few guys. And it felt like a deployment because... There's rows of buses, military buses outside, picking up all these guys coming from their various flights, going to various bases around uh, Germany. And you thought, wow, this is huge. You know, there weren't the buses weren't full, but there was like, you know, a fair few guys getting on these buses and they just all shot off in their own direction. And you're doing like a bus dropping off or off. Anyone right, throw out your anyone, off you get. Pulling this little camp. It's the first time I saw the camp, pulled in through the old bollards. And then you see, and the the nice refreshing thing was, everyone's got the same cat badge. You're no longer in basic where everyone's got different cat mm. badges. Yeah, all these different you know, cav regiments and you know, different kind of flashes for tank regiments. Everyone's got green flashes and cat badges, and they all sound the same, or at least very similar. And that was quite reassuring to go into the guard room and so on. But you're new, aren't you? You. you you, you, there was a nickname that we had at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't say that I don't think you can actually. No, it'd be misinterpreted. <laughs> exactly. It? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So we had, a, 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 we were new in Germany. Yep. And um, and that's when the difficulty started, I think, because you're now new and you, you've now got to go through these various initiations, haven't you? You've got to yeah prove yourself to the last. So you're a new family. 
that you can be relied on and trusted and everything else. And the usual probing is there and people say, where are you from? You know, Bristol, oh yeah, someone's from Bristol, you'll, you'll know him. And you've got that familiarity, which is nice, which is reassuring, And but it's, it's short-lived when you get to the barracks. Did you, I always remember, I mean, you, of course, you're apprehensive, you're excited, you're apprehensive, and I was a little bit terrified as well, mm. to be honest, because especially when you, you know, you get taken into your rooms now. I mean, I remember my very first, I started off in Barker Barracks in Paderborn, yeah. and I remember I was sharing a room with four other guys at that time, had all been in like a fair few years, and you just felt so out of place, and like yeah. you didn't know anything, and they just all seemed, I mean, you look back at it now, and you think at our age now, what, what on earth was I worried about? But I then know. they seem terrifying, don't they? Senior troopers, isn't it? Yeah. Senior yeah. troopers. The, the, the land tracks were always fine because they had so much to lose senior troopers just didn't care they were your nemesis at the time especially the ones which have been in for a few years and they like to hit the nappy bar you know and that's what I found difficult was the engaging with people which which really initially just wanted to give you a hard time yeah, yeah. yeah. and I don't think that was down to, some of that wasn't just down to um, seeing how good you are at soldiers some of that down was just outright bullying but that was the way that it was mm. back then. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah And, and yeah. it's not to be condoned, but I think it kind of taught you a little bit of integrity and resilience to deal with things. But it did make the first few moments quite, quite worrying, I think. You know, you, you're certainly looking around thinking, oh, where, where is it coming from next? Or you just, when, when is someone else new going to arrive so that the, the heat's taken <laughs> off on me? Off you. yeah, exactly, and you're yeah. hoping for someone <laughs> arriving. Myself and Tim, we arrived at the same time and there are two of us, me and Tim, we... We joined up together. We literally, our numbers are one number apart. That's how, how close we were when we joined. And um, we just said, oh, someone's got, someone new's got to arrive soon. And I think it took about four months of, of us being the the, um, the targets. But yeah, someone turned up eventually and the sort of like, it shifted slightly. And then after a year, you kind of accept it, aren't you? You've got a, a year of being, you know, pushed a little bit, do a couple of exercises, do ranges a little bit do a few duties, get people to really know. When I think you get to know someone properly if you're on stag with them. Yeah, you know, yeah. If you do a, you know, two on four off and you're on prowler with someone, on the gate with somebody, you hope they can hold a conversation, don't you? You know, so, um, yeah, that's when you finally sat there. Do you remember your first commander? Do you remember your first crew commander? Yeah, Rosie Larkham. Was it Rosie? Yeah, yeah, Dave. <laughs> he was, my, he was um, yeah, I was in B Squadron. I think it was Five Troop. Five Troop, yeah, he was my first commander. Because when you when you meet these people, I mean, mine was Taff Anderson, my first yeah. ever commander, who uh, who actually later went on to be a bit of a TV star, didn't he? In that series, remember Here Come the Sheriffs? Oh, really? Yeah, he was uh, he was one of these uh, debt collectors on Here yeah. Come, which did he I go thought. To the prison service, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I do remember him popping up though again on this yeah. TV series, which was hilarious. But you, yeah. you, when you meet these people, you think, oh my, it feels like they've been in forever and they know everything as well, doesn't it? And uh, quite terrifying characters. The to be wealth honest. of knowledge they've got, and, and because. I think from basic, you see the the rank on people's arms, and and you you that's the first thing, first thing you see, isn't it? That yeah, rank. yeah, yeah. So you automatically think, right? I've got to do as this person says. You know, I have to respect this structure in front of me. And you get a sergeant turn up, and they say, and they got the same accent, or Rosie's from down Cornwall, or, or <laughs> anything. Well, I kind of take him seriously. <laughs> he doesn't sound very rough at all, but you know, they're your boss. But I was lucky; he was really good. And if you're a good gunner, which I turn out I was. I was, or if he's going to say you're a good gunner, then I'm I'm fine with that. It was okay. He was a good commander. I think he was my commander. I th it was my my driver was George Harrell, and I think my operator was Ned Kelly. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember Ned Kelly. I think it was yeah. my operator. I think good I crew. Think, good yeah, crew. Yeah, it was a good crew. 
Okay, I think my, I think before George, I actually might have had um, uh, Zippy. He was, and again, I'm not going to give for it, but that, that, was, these were my crew. And that's your crew. That's your new family, isn't it? When you, when you go on exercise, these are people you're living with. You're going to be closed down with them. And we did our first first FTX that year. It was uh, it was cold at Arnhammer in 80, oh, 80, oh, end of 88. Yeah. Pretty sure it was November 88, I think. And that was cold. I mean, I, I didn't, I just took it for norm though. I didn't it didn't think that it was going to be cold or hot. I just well, this is exercise. This is what it's like in the army. And I was on. I remember being on guard, and I was totally random. I was just had a pair of combats, and I was freezing. And I said, "You haven't got a Parker." I said, "What's a Parker?" <laughs> I put this on. I thought, oh, "This is so nice. Oh, you can have these things." People walk around in German sleeping bags where you can just like have them as a jacket and then yeah, yeah, undo yeah. the sleeve yeah. at the bottom. So, yeah, good crew. They were a decent crew. Enjoyed it. Did you, I mean, how would you sum up your time? So how long did you end up serving the Richard, the whole... About seven and a half years. Seven and a half years. So you yeah. did, you went to do driver training and all the rest of it in the end, or...? Yeah, so I did, did my driver training, phase two six, yeah. went to Gunner Mech. So I took the turret route in the end. So I, I had every intention. At that stage, I was Gunner Mech, Lance Jack by 92, just after the amalgamation. I was crewman on CVRT. I'd, I'd done the Raden. I've done Scorpion. So I say, I remember you being a recce troop for a while. Yeah, yeah. I did recce about two and a half years. So I went as recce prior to amalgamation, and I really enjoyed it because recce was always seen as cream, was whether it was or wasn't. Yeah, whether we, we, we weren't. Yeah, we yeah, always yeah, thought yeah. we were. <laughs> so I'm going to hold that for now because I was in it. For you a can have that one. <laughs> and it was it was good. We had we had a recce troop. It was good, and um, it was Mel Law was our troop sergeant on that one, and it, it was a good troop. We had a lot of good lads in there. And even when we amalgamated, the amalgamation was a good troop. And so I had a really decent amount of tank qualifications, CBRT, Charlie, crewman on all of them, gunner mech on all of them. And I thought, right, I'm I'm gonna do this. And at that point they're give, we were giving us this um incentive, weren't we, where we were being paid money. That's right. If we stayed yeah, in yeah. I think it was five years. Something like that, yeah. You got fifteen hundred quid, I thought well, that's a couple of grand. I thought, well, I'm sticking around, this is great, you get another you get some more later on. So we weren't really ready for the changes that were gonna filter down from once the wall had come down in eighty nine. We weren't really prepared for the I guess the changes that the amalgamations would make mm-hmm. with regards to promotion and everything else. We'd done Northern Ireland in nineteen ninety, which was I enjoyed it because it was a job we were paid mm. to do rather than sitting around being bored. We did the UN in 93 of the Cyprus, which right, granted it was six months getting drunk, but it was still a job to be paid, wasn't it? And when that finished in 93, early 94, got back and went on block leave, met someone on leave. And you do, don't you? You meet, you meet someone on leave and you, this is the one for me and you try and run a relationship and it doesn't work because yeah, you're, yeah. you're queuing up to the phone and you can't put any five Deutschmarks in and you have five minutes conversation. That, that's your relationship for a, a month. And so you go and do a weekend millionaire and spend all your money on one weekend, go back, yeah. say hello and come back again. And you <laughs> yeah, skim yeah. for 28 days. So I met this girl and I thought, you know what? I can't keep having this distance relationship and plus it's not working in the in the regiment anymore. The promotion, we, we've been told it was going to be a bit of a delay before you get your second stripe. And I really want to be second stripe. I've been at Lansdowne for three and I thought, well, it must have some sort of idea when I'm going to get my next promotion. So just don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to be a while. So I've looked at a few things and I thought, and I was starting to do, I started to experiment with drugs a little bit whilst on leave, nothing significant, but all my friends were really... While I was away in Cyprus, I think, over that 
with that six month period from say the beginning of 93 until the end of 94 so we were training they'd all started to get involved in things which I wasn't really committed to or understood and I, I never really fitted in with this what was going on yeah, and what I noticed when I came back from Cyprus was they were all going out partying and taking various drugs and I thought I can't really do this because I'm serving in drugs testing and everything else it's not really going to be because I was going to say I always remember like there was, there was a strong drink mentality I mean I always remember, yeah. it's probably why I mean I, I really don't drink now I have the occasional glass of wine and that and I always say to my other half that she says well you really don't drink at all I says well do you know what I think I, probably because I had more than my fair share in the younger life because it was massive a wasn't lot it, of it. And it's so every night well, squadron bars it? and all that sort of thing then yeah. every weekend obviously single guys you go out and party and all the rest yeah. of it I said but I have to say Rich I never ever once mm. like the, the drugs thing it never mm. really you know I, I do recall there was a few you know took the occasional joint or something but yeah. never never drugs as, as per se no it was it was strange because when I got introduced into Smoking a bit of pot every now and again, and because I, I, I didn't smoke, I've never smoked. So smoking pot was really weird for me because I don't really have that need to that hand to mouth action where, where cigarette smoking is kind yeah, of like yeah. that. But once someone on this kind of like an underground network of people within the regiment who participated and dabbled, and once people realise that you might be inclined, they start coming out of the woodwork. And you see these secret circles and they always exist. And this is part of what I do now is trying to prevent this. And again, we'll go into that later on. But um, I certainly found there were more people than you would have thought in dabbling in things, which you you would be surprised. And it was more often than, more often than you would think as well. And I thought, I don't want to lose a, lose a career or, or be discharged because of this yeah, yeah. behaviour because it would then destroy everything I've done and this whole thing about my dad being proud of me was still held in very high yeah. esteem. I didn't really want to let him down. So I thought, I'm going to get out. I'll get out. Because these, the, all these different things happened at the same time. Girlfriend, promotion. Cyprus was great. Germany wasn't so great. It was raining. Cyprus was hot. And I thought, oh, I don't know. It's, maybe it's not for me anymore. I wasn't feeling it. So I just I sign off. That's it. Um, so I did. I signed off in 94 with a host of other people. There's so many signing off after Cyprus. I mean, a lot of big names, a lot of characters, a lot of Lance Jacks. We said, look, just, you know, just trying to move on. And uh, it was then a case of what to do. What what am I going to do with my my life? I'm not going to be a builder because this whole thing about manual trade back then didn't make any difference then. Why would it be wise now? So I looked at my options and... Um, one of the guys leaving with me, we'd been in a similar sort of time. I don't think he got, I don't think he got himself promoted. He may have done. Um, we got given the, you know, to go down to the, was it called a careers office, the library? I think there was some kind of, some room we went into. And we'd, we'd literally, they would punch in your um, military details. It's a big archaic computer, it's about the size of this room. It's <laughs> sort of like resentment type thing it or something. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It was yeah. kind of like a, someone just kind of like said, Yeah, there you go. That's and it would print out a, on an old this print, old printed paper, yeah. you know, they'll laminate it down the side <laughs> and you tear it off, and it would have a list of all the things you you could p- potentially do. It would translate or translate your military qualification to that, right? Okay, there's right, this is your budget. Yeah, so right, you've been in this long, you've 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 this you know, your career is you've been promoted, blah blah. I think my budget was three grand, maybe three and a half grand, I'm not completely sure. And you'd look through this list and think, right, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And it's like, you think you've got to make a decision now. Or felt like I had to make yeah, a decision yeah. now. And then, flip through and I said, oh, there's 
ages flicker and they said, oh, close protection. Oh, what's that? And I said, security, bodyguard. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And then it sounded more interesting because the film... Uh, with Kev Costner and Whitney Houston was like at the same time and that, that was getting a lot of high reviews I'm sure yeah I know yeah yeah and I thought oh, maybe uh, that sounds good and it seemed like the logical thing to do from the army it's same sort of mindset same kind of ticking all the same boxes military training is going to be a must for that anyway all the weapons training and everything else I thought yeah I'm going to do that I'm going to be a bodyguard and that's the mentality I carried was this ridiculous notion that this is going to be great which, which it would have been. So we, we, we signed up for this course, me and this other chap. And um, I think within, literally within a few months, we were put on this course in beginning of April, 95. I was due to get out around about August, 95. So a few months before we got out, off to Maidstone in, uh, in the UK. So they, we went to the, uh, I think the money was transferred into our bank accounts. In fact, I know it was. We had to go and draw the money out of the account in, in Fally. Well, they've actually given us the money. <laughs> How stupid is that? <laughs> what are they thinking? So me and this lab went down to the bank, and we, and we actually made on the exchange rate, I think, because the course was going to cost X amount. And they trusted us to draw the money out of our account in Germany, to change it into English from Deutschmarks, because it's still Deutschmarks then, take this money back to England and then pay for the course You know, as you arrive. And the money made it. Well, most of it did. <laughs> it got there in one piece. Paid for the course. It was a month in a hotel, training with XSBS. And it was an amazing course. It was brilliant. It was so up there. I mean, these guys are special. They, they, they know what they're doing. And protection of that is, is that's one of their specialities, isn't it? And, and we learned some really good stuff. All the stuff. And it was a high-level course. All the armed techniques, disarming, all, all the stuff we thought we knew in the army was elevated so much higher with these guys within four weeks. And firing things like, it, we, they would draw the guns out and we, we were first time firing from the hip, which I was terrified, literally from there. <laughs> because when you pull your gun, you want to get around us. And, and we we're actually on the range and I was shooting. I thought, is this going to go through my jacket? It's going to go through, this, it's going to go through my side. If I don't do it right, and, and you're literally shooting, and, and you say from me to one of the cameras away, and you're shooting that close, and as you're seeing the holes punching in the target, and as you're adjusting your body, you see them getting further and further on target. And it was great, because we're doing things which, re which seemed really unorthodox. Really good course. Didn't help for adding to my unnatural level of confidence and this sense of, like, you know, I'm, I'm amazed I've been in the army, now look at me, and, and it really, it almost makes you arrogant. Mm. And I won't yeah, say no, arrogant, I, I don't... Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say you felt arrogant, but it made it, it did make you seem arrogant or, or at least feel like you're better than everyone else. So anyway, this, did this course, passed, not a problem, everyone through, all guys passed, the other that I was with passed, and, and, and you go back to your unit, you know, and, and you, you, you kind of whittle away. And, and at the time, I got back in May, mid-May 95. Our guys had gone on to Op4 over to Canada. So there's no one there. It was empty. We had, the, we had the rear party and that was it and what's the rear party 100 guys maybe if that maybe 50 stagging on that's all they're doing isn't it and uh, there was no one left there that I really knew um, all the guys that I, apart from the guys who were also getting out I thought there was no send off it was kind of like you're just going to disappear and it kind of made me feel a bit detached from the whole experience because I thought when you leave and you want to say goodbye to your mates yeah. your family and you I didn't get that. I didn't get that chance to say goodbye because no one was there. Everyone would have gone. 
and it was quite sort of like I wouldn't say a letdown but it's thought well this kind of fizzled out it, it just died you know, the, the, the army then just thought oh that's it now I'm walking away the, it wasn't like you're leaving something you want to remember there was no big oh goodbye Jonah I can't even give my nickname that's not even politically correct anymore I can't give my real nickname <laughs> you know, i got to call myself Jonah um, and there was none of that send off so I didn't have that sense of of like a, of leaving something I'd miss yeah yeah so um, yeah, so left in and and I sort of spoke to and it was Dave Larkin was our RSM at the time, and I just lost my uncle or about a month or so before two months before that, and uh, you know, the loss had hit my mum quite hard and all all the family, and I kind of a bit cheeky I kind of used it as a bit of an excuse and I went to see um, Dave and I said look I'm I've signed off. Um, I'm not due to go. My disembarkation leave or my, my termination leave is going to be so much. I've got so much leave left. I can apply for this. And all things said and done, I could probably shoot off around about the end of June and then do six or seven weeks, hand me ID in the end of August to do your last month and then you get your last payment in September. I said, is there anything stopping me from going now? I said, look, we want to get back. My mum's having a bad time. She wasn't having that bad at the time. I just kind of like played on us like a little bit. He said, well, you're not doing any good here, are you? And he said, yeah, you must get on your way, just get yourself sorted out and get yourself out, have some extended leave and go back, which is really nice. But it kind of, I'm not going to blame him for this, but it didn't help because I then got back home, I think like the end of May. So I then had something like three months, three, nearly four months of, of being paid by the army. So I started, right, okay, so I'm, I'm technically still in the job. I don't have to get a job. So my mum at the time said, well, her, member of her family, um, long story, they owned a building, and from this building there were some people doing door work. They ran a door firm, they're doing door supervisor work. So well, you'll get on that easily with your qualifications and CP, you'll get a, door, a job on the doors, no problem. So I did, I went and sort of got a job working doors, Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, cash in hand, it was, wasn't much, it was like probably 15 quid a night. This, this was around Bristol way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was on the door of a bar called the Frog and Toad off Park Street at the time. Sounds nice. Yeah, I know. It was uh, <laughs> it, it was it was a brand new bar. It was okay. It was okay. And um, so I stood a bit of door work, which which was fine. Didn't need the money really, because um, I was got paid getting paid from the army. And then my dad at the time he's just left the police force, and he was setting up a, a job with friends of his, ex police, ex special forces, doing surveillance. And so we might need someone to help us out. We need someone young and fit who can be our. Um, they, they're all. They seemed all old duffers then, but they weren't. They're all. I'm older than <laughs> he is now. Age, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. He's, he was younger than I am now then. <laughs> and they said we need someone to do like a like a foot follow because you know, we need. We're not going to start running around chasing people down. So you're interested? I said, well, I'd love to do that. Yeah, it'd be great. So we we do give you some surveillance work every now and again. We'll pay you cash for now because obviously we appreciate that you you're still being paid from the army. And, yeah, I said that's great. So I thought, well, this is this is brilliant. I'm getting paid for surveillance, doing some door work, and still getting paid by the army. So I didn't have to take things too seriously. And um, I sort of kind of drifted for this for about a month or so. I'd not moved in with my girlfriend at the time. The only thing I wasn't really ready for was when I was um, doing the door work. I was getting quite frustrated. I was starting to take drugs. I was starting to take amphetamine because. I think it was a case of everyone else was. And what I noticed was that it seemed to be the weird, the done thing of everyone that I knew. 
So I was taking this um, on the Friday and Saturday night, and it didn't it didn't really dawn on me about it being wrong. I felt like well, everyone else is doing it. It can't be that bad. Where, where's the harm? I've been in worse positions. So I started to engage in taking drugs, which is neither at the most neither here nor there. So the door work I was doing was beginning to. Um, I was beginning to get exposed to things, I was beginning to see things which I wasn't really ready for. And and, and the door work kind of led me down and started to introduce me to characters which I wasn't ready to meet at an early stage. And I'll go into that in a bit. But what killed it for me was Chap, I was really close friends with work, he did door work as well. He did some work with a company called Top Guard Security and they did a lot of boxing venue stuff like that. So in 90. I think it's 95 or 96, I can't remember the exact year, possibly 96. So when Frank Bruno won the world title, he beat Oliver McCall, mm -hmm. the ball. We did ringside security on that fight. We were in with the VIPs, me and my friend, with Top Guard, we were doing the, nice gig. the event. Yeah, was it ever? We were doing <laughs> the event. To get the title as well was when we were literally we were like twenty feet from the ring, and it was it was an incredible experience. And we're really naive when we when we're in the forces. We think we know everything, don't we? We think we know the world. We know that world really well. Mm, yeah, yeah. What we don't know is the real world. We don't understand how it works properly. And we alluded to that earlier on about some of the things we're chatting about, yeah. things like wage structure, everything else. We just we just don't really know. So um, yes, yeah, so I was working with, with Top Guard. Did a few jobs, few boxing venues, and then. I think the following year, um, we did a venue with Oasis in Nebworth, 96. Same thing, backstage, securing, escorting VIPs around and being exposed to certain things. And and I think what, and, and I suppose bearing in mind, I'm trying to weigh up a few different things, and this will make sense in, in a bit. I'm doing a, a job, I'm working hard and being paid. Security is now my job, CP work, surveillance, and it's all working quite well. Um, I've not really touched on my clubbing yet, but I'll go into that in a sec, because that's different, <laughs> totally different. And I'm doing this CP job in, in Nebworth, and we're, we're, I'm seeing people that I'm seeing on TV. I'm surrounded by these famous people. And we're invited to the end. The, the event goes off really well. We're invited into the backstage to the, to the VIP party at the end. And me and all the security guys were in there walking around and, and it's just rammed to the walls with famous people. And most of them are doing drugs of some kind. And then somebody, I won't say who that person's name is, comes up to me and says, oh, I'm looking for so-and-so. And the person he's looking for is the guy that employed me for the security job. And I said, oh yeah, he's over there. And what's happened, he was, not only was he providing us all the work, he was also supplying all these lot with their cocaine. And I just, Something just like a little penny dropped in the back of my mind, and I thought, oh, "That's interesting. Is that how that works? And is that is that how this world is? Is that how this industry is?" Well, that's how it was before it was regulated with the SIA badge. When that came out, obviously a lot of changes. So I'm trying to figure out, right? Okay, so this this is how this works. Is it people involved in security are involved in this as well? Mm. I guess that's normal. So for us, it, right and wrong is quite a wavy line, isn't it? So I just accepted this. I thought, well, okay, that's, that's clearly that's that's what's done. So these little things are logging in the back of my mind. They're not act, they're not activating anything yet. They're just being remembered and, and logged. And um, so I'm drifting through this this career of, of and so this I say this career. It's in a short space of time. It's over a year where this kind of transition goes takes a sort of left turn, if you like. 
And I did some more surveillance work, ironically, for a, a private company, me and the chap that we left the army with. We had to go up to Birmingham and watch a pub uh, and watch it for people taking drugs, which is quite interesting. <laughs> we had to set up a surveillance. And we, I was sat in the van, smoking a joint, watching this... Um, <laughs> this pub with people taking drugs and I thought I'd be a hypocrite if I reported anything on this but I monitored I, I, you know, I logged the movements and everything I did I did the job properly as I should have done went back reported the findings to the um, to this private company and submitted my invoice as, as you would do and you know, the invoice wasn't forthcoming or the payment wasn't forthcoming so I went down to the um, office and said look you know, this is overdue I need pay and I've got bills to pay because I'm living literally you know, day by day. My, my existence is difficult. My money management is horrendous. So I'm literally dependent on that wage to pay my bills. You know, I'm, I'm now living in a, uh, a small flat, which, is, which was run by Hague Homes, funny enough. Uh, my, my grandparents lived with them, and they had these brand-new flats in Bristol on Bathroom, which were really good. Uh, old Victorian houses had a lovely little house or a little flat, it was cheap, but I was behind on the rent, or I was going to be behind on the rent. I didn't understand the the complexities of how much time you got. If you're a little bit late, you can you can, you can play with it a little bit. I just panicked, thinking I've got to get the rent paid. So I went down to this chap. I said, the, the invoice is overdue. If you got payment, he said, well, you didn't really get a result, so we're not going to pay you. I said, how does that work? He said, no, I'm not going to pay you. you. You you didn't get a result. I said, you can't force someone to do something. You know, I can't use entrapment. That's illegal. So you didn't get what I needed. I said, well, you wouldn't pay me. You, it, I could have sat there for 36 hours and then you'd have had a much larger bill. I'd still guarantee nothing. So surveillance is just lucky if the target moves, mm. lucky if they do what you want them to do. I've reported my arrival with with, with a video of the, with a camera this big. Um, my arrival time, um, a random video across of people moving in and out of the pub. I've reported the time I've left with another video. So you can see my time, you see my time of, of departure. That's my hours. There's my expenses. So I'll pay your expenses, but I'm not paying you for the surveillance. So naturally, I was quite upset because it was due. It wasn't a huge amount. It was about £128. I don't know where that came from. It's £128. I had to pay the guy with me 30, 40 quid for his time and then my money and the fuel and everything else. And he, he wasn't going to pay. He's going to pay like 50 quid. I thought, that's not enough. I need more than that because I got to pay my rent. So I took the check and then I was... I. I was very upset. I, I didn't kick off, although I did. I went around the whole office kicking and punching doors through and everything else, creating a, a right havoc. And yeah, to get several people to escort me off the premises, which which they did. And um, I was really annoyed because I thought, how does that work? I've, worked, I've, I've put the hours in. I've done the job and he's not going to pay me. He's blatantly refusing to pay me. I've never, we didn't have that in the army. No. He got paid every every month, <laughs> yeah. regardless, and it didn't compute. So I'm going to rewind back a, a few months now, and, and my part in is beginning to start. So I'm doing my door work, and I finish my shift on the door at 11 o'clock. That's when pubs used to close at 11, and I go to the club. And I walk into the club, and my friends are in there having a great time, and they're, you know, they're, they all look, they're having a really good time. And so, well, you know, what have you been doing? <laughs> so we've had a we've had a pill. I think and a pill is ecstasy. I think. Oh, and this this is in '95. This is when it's really gone crazy yeah, from yeah. The, from the field raves and the garages and the warehouses and everything's leaching into the clubs now. And I'm I'm thinking, oh, all right, okay. So, would you want one? I went. Oh, 
yeah, go on then, why not? I, I, I kind of thought if everyone else is, there was no peer pressure. It was like, take it or leave it. I thought, well, I want to be where you are. I like what you seem to be experiencing right now, so let's give it a go. And I wasn't a big drinker. We drunk a lot. Like you said, we drank a lot in the forces. But I never liked to get drunk. I wasn't really someone that got... My capacity was drink a lot and then fall over and be sick. That was me, and I felt rough for three or four days afterwards. Well, that doesn't really doesn't really make sense to me. So he'd, he, this guy turned back up with a within a few minutes and he said here you go and his little sneaky hand over in your palm for oh, here we go just roll the dice just throw it down the hatch and washed it down and and just waited for this time bomb because it was back in the time when in the news a lot of publicity about ecstasy and the, the tragic loss of Leah Betts and everything yeah, else yeah. It was all around at this time and you sat there thinking is this going to be the one that's going to get me it's like Russian it felt like Russian roulette but it didn't seem to matter. You said, well, let's just do it anyway. None of that mattered after about 40 minutes because within 40 minutes, thereabouts, that whole room just changed. Everything in there just changed. And the music got louder, the, the DJ's voice got louder, everything just completely transformed. And I just never felt anything like it. I mean, I was totally blown away by that experience. And the guys clearly saw I was having a good time. They said, oh, you okay? I said, yeah. They said, come on, let's go have a dance. And I thought, yeah, let's go and dance. <laughs> I don't dance. <laughs> <laughs> Off we went downstairs. We're on the upstairs. We went down to this, we went down. And and the guys were just sort of, we were just shuffling away down there. You know, like a, like a squatty shuffle. <laughs> and uh, they got podiums around this club. And on the, this podium, there's, there's two guys up on there. Shirts off, bold heads. And just, they look like having a great time. Surrounded by people. And, uh, they're just waving down at us and, and he makes it all oh, that's that's the guys that um got your your thing for you. I said, Oh really? I said, Do you want to say hello? I said, Yeah, that'd be nice. So they said, Oh, it's my Reg, he's just left the army. Because everyone said, Oh, this is what he's just left the army, or this is what he's in the army. You're always introduced in that same way for some reason, or mates did anyway. I came down, give you a big sweaty hug, and you think, wow, and they go back up and something again dropped in the back of my mind and I thought, these guys are just having a great time. Look at their they're like being, they're like a focus point for mm. this whole area. They're not the center of attention, but they are. Not that they intend to be, and not that I wanted to be, but I don't know if something that you ever felt when I used to go on leave and meet my civvy mates. You, you're more than welcome to be a part of that group. We just don't quite feel that you fit. In. No, you, you always feel a bit of an outsider, yeah. 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 And I've always described it as like a satellite. You know, you're kind of like this person that's just appears for a couple of weeks at a time every now and again and plenty of money to spend because you haven't spent any and yeah yeah do you know what I mean and you're seen to be and, and some of the people gravitate towards you because of that they'll mm. think oh this guy's a bit flash with the cash yes yeah, have a drink come on lads you'll be the last one standing as usual and this this impresses some and it doesn't impress others but you never really quite gel with the, with the group do you? you never quite completely think because you're not current with those people yeah, you're yeah, not, yeah. Yeah. you don't know what's going on in their lives you just get a little snippet a little snapshot and they get a little snapshot of you so for that reason, I've always been this satellite on the outside of this group of friends, and I've never re really quite fitted in with them. Doesn't mean I'm not welcome. Just means that because of my own issues, I've not quite fitted in. So um, something dropped when I took this 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 pill. That for that moment, whilst that pill was, the effects were on me. I felt the same as everyone else around me in that room. Exactly the same. We were sensing the same music. We were 
felt the same emotionally. Lots of love, lots of happiness, lots of joy. We felt identical. So that moment then, I felt like I belonged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just for that, just for that duration. You were sort of accepted at that point in time. Yeah, you felt like the, the, I'm, I'm now. It was hugs and it was love. It was everyone was yeah. very nice and, albeit quite false, when you look back on it. But at the time, it was real. So I felt like I belonged with something. So that ecstasy made me feel like I was being involved. So it kind of started to take a bit of a, a turn when my legitimate jobs were refusing to pay me money. I was looking at my options about how do I pay the bills? How do I earn money? So at the time, there was one of the guys, we had a group of five of us. Four of these guys were civvies and it was me. And one of the guys that was training with uh, we that left with me he was living in London he'd come back on the old weekend and they have a weekend night with us and um, one of the guys would go and get our drugs for us prior to us going out and he was doing this for a few weeks and he got to the point where he couldn't do it anymore he just thought oh, I don't want to do it I'm not really I'm getting worried I'm getting nervous it, basically he was, he, he'd lost his bottle which is fair enough it's not there's no pressure it's like anybody volunteer oh yeah I'll do it done worse you know We've, we've, we've lived through worse and we've, we've, we've experienced worse and I've got this stupid level of confidence from the, the army and the, the, the training with the SBS. Well, yeah, it's easy, it's only a few pills. So I went and met this guy and picked up, I think it was like five E's. And he said, that'll be 40 quid. I was like, that's eight pound each. Yeah, they're only eight pound if you buy them in bulk. And I thought, oh, right, okay. So he said, make sure you sell them for a tenner, mind. That's what they go for. So I thought, oh, yeah, okay, so oh, I made a towel, got one for nothing. I only got a couple of quid to spend. So all of a sudden, this, this thing, I thought, all oh, right, that's how I can make some money. So this is how it started. We were buying five pills. Did, uh, did you at any stage, I mean, obviously, from what you said, Rich, your, your dad was a like, huge influence mm. all the way through the army. At, at what point were you sort of, did you not have that sort of, you know, good angel, bad angel yeah, saying that, you know, what did, would dad think was, of all this? It was always there. It was always there. And, and this this was the most difficult dilemma that I always faced from day one was if I take a, if I venture down this route, yeah. if I step onto this path and I start walking down this path, I run the risk of losing all that sort of support from my family, <clears throat> support from people that love me, pe people that have, my dad was a, a no, not annoyed. He was disappointed I left the army anyway. Although he was quite glad I'd gone to the same kind of career as him, he was disappointed that I'd left. But he, un he, he understood my reasons for leaving. And I thought, if he finds out, this is what I'm doing. Mm. And bear in mind, I'd be going out on weekends on, say, let's say Friday and Saturdays, getting absolutely wasted. And I'd be going to work on the Monday feeling quite rough, working with my dad. There's nothing worse <laughs> than turning up on a surveillance plot Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure from his past life was pretty aware of uh, what you were up to even at that stage. Well, yeah, I would never have perceived him to be stupid. I think he would just think, <laughs> let's just, as long as he holds it together, let's go yeah. from that. So, you know, it, it was hard. It was hard trying to live a lie. And that's when I started to live a lie from day one. It, it was like a double life. So, um, yeah, it was difficult. It was really difficult. And But this progression kind of moved forward and, and, and I found that the more I was relying on going to clubbing to earn some money, the less capable I was of doing the surveillance because I was beginning to have to, if I'm to make the money to survive, I've got to go out on a Thursday night, a Friday night and a Saturday night to, just to stand a chance to generate enough money just to pay the bills, just, just to get close. It wasn't lucrative, it was a way of life because 
my consumption rate of of ecstasy was low. You know, I wouldn't be eating a light sweets like some people would. It would be one a night. Still a lot for some. Still a lot anyway. But I'd have to sell. I'd have to sell quite a few. If I'm only making two pound on each one, that's a lot of the a lot to sell to pay your rent and your food and your petrol for your car and everything else. Yeah. It, it, it's a, you've got to sell a few. So I'm starting to think, well, this, this isn't working. So um, at the time in this flat I was living in, um, my neighbours, I was on the top floor, my neighbours had decided to move out because, probably because I was quite noisy and I feel really bad because they were really nice people and when they'd moved out, it just left me in these six, one of one of six Victorian flats and I was the only occupant there. So I rang up my mate in London, I said, all right, mate, so they've moved out downstairs, you want to you get yourself down here? There's a, there's, a, there's a flat going. Yeah, oh, yeah, all right, no worries, Jonah. I'll, I'll, I'll come and have a look. Because he'd stayed at mine anyway on on weekends. And um, it made sense. You know, he, he could, If he needed to, he could commute to London and work because he was doing a residential security job. He could commute and do some work there anyway. So he came down, he moved in the flat below me. And um, so that was kind of like a bit bad, really, because there's then two of us in there, four empty flats. And... Um, I think some months later we were just we were just got, we spent a few months just ticking over and nothing really major, nothing significant, nothing really changed. It was just ticking over. I was doing a bit of surveillance where I was doing a bit of door work. I I I jacked the door work in after I think after several months. Um and I was doing a few bits here and there to try and pull some money in and, and as well as selling a few pills. And I was trying to sell maybe a little bit of cannabis and it just just starting out, just trying to probe in where do I fit in, what, what which route am I gonna take? And then we, by pure chance, stumbled across another guy we served with. I won't say his name. You'd know him. And um, he was from Bristol as well. So what are you doing with yourself? So I got a job up in the co-op. And a manager, you're giving you a manager's job. <laughs> That's weird. He said, yeah, yeah, no problem. If you have any food, give me a shout. So, well, yeah, we're starving down here. <laughs> Can't afford food. So we would take my, I had my van at the time. And uh drive up to the back of this co-op in this area that he lived in and he'd, he'd crack the back doors open he'd start chucking out freezer meals and microwave meals and we'd literally fill the van up with food go back and I said hey mate why don't you come and live down with us we got this there's, there's some flats free here so he, he applied within about a week two weeks he was living next door to the guy downstairs oh that's great so we've got three of us in there now it's like being back in Hamer or Fally. All of a sudden, we've got a barracks again, haven't we? I mean, we're, we're back in the block. So um, he moves then. He gets sacked from his job on the cop after a few months. I can't think why. Yeah, wonder why yeah. <laughs> St- stop taking was down. So um, he said, I've got no jobs here. I said, well, look, why didn't you team up with me? You know, we, we could just do it. Let's work together. Military. So he said, yeah, oh, I'd love to. Because he was going out with us on weekends at that stage anyway. So we did. We started to get involved in that. And um, so by then, the, the work for me with security, that was, that's gone. That's gone. It's completely, we're now looking into moving in sort of like early 96, 97. I'm still pretending I'm doing security here and there for people who don't know from my income. I still see that. But the reality was the thing, I was suffering with depression at that stage, I know, but I don't think it was, it was obvious, but there were certainly down days, but that's part of what we deal with at the time, isn't it? Most of it was going out clubbing and partying. So we started to live this new lifestyle. And it was, I'd say, probably unhinged. Because all of a sudden we had three ex-squaddies living in these flats, literally within a stone throw to each other. Like, literally, like, you're there. Like you're living in the block. 
but with no rules, with lots of drug taking and lots of parties. And it was like, I can't condone it, but it was, at the time, it was just crazy. And it was good. We felt it was good. In reflection, it was horrendous. But back then, this is just amazing. And we began to sort of, the, the lifestyle shifted then from life in the army. And to be in the out, you know, we've only been out for, for less than a year. I still relatively new out. The other guys have been out, you know, the guy that had been suffering the court had been out even less. You know, he'd been out for a few months. For him, it was still quite new. So we were really trying to, we were, we, it was the blind leading the blind. And we had no idea which, which route. We didn't know where it was going to go. Like I said, bro, when you join up, we didn't know where it was going to go. Direction, yeah, yeah. We were just following our noses. Let's see, let's see where it goes. And um, we just sort of like remained in this like stagnant pool for a little while. I was a little while, it was about, it was about three years <laughs> where we just kind of operated, living just within our means, just barely within our means. I mean, as go our partners in the clubs, we, we'd got the, the club we were going to, we kind of really set it up in a way that we could get away as much as we could. We had various members of staff on side because what we found was the more people that were under the influence of drugs were less likely to cause problems through being drunk and disorderly. So we found that door staff were quite happy with what was going on because their job was easier. And everyone was paid in kind. We had managers, DJs, lighting jocks, bar staff. It would cost me about seven or eight pills by giving each one of these people one of these pills as a thank you for their involvement in what we're doing, which meant we could drink as much free beer as we could get off over the bar because the bar staff were covered. We never paid for drinks. So that's your money back straight away. We had what music we wanted because the DJ was on side. We had security covered because the doormen were on side. We had the manager on board, he'd bring our stuff in for us. So we didn't have to worry about going past the door staff because it was already in the club. And it was, at the time, it was great. It was it was just, we literally danced and partied for like three years. And I don't know, I mean, some of the parties were, were crazy. I, I thought we'd seen some nudging stuff back in the barracks. The stuff that went on, those, those, it was just, it was next level stuff. It was stupid. So we kind of kept going this route and... We kind of kept going this way until about the back end, or I say mid '98, things started to change slightly. Myself and my partner in crime were had a difference of opinion about how things should be run, and he felt that it was good to spend all the money <laughs> and not pay the bills, i.e., the people who the money to. I felt that if you in, for longevity, it's probably quite wise to pay your supplier <laughs> occasionally, yeah, occasionally, because yeah. then you can get some more goods and keep going. So we ran into a few problems during the early part of 98. I mean, yeah, certainly from, say, winter 98. Was, yeah, definitely early 98 to mid 98. We ran into a fair few problems. One of them being quite significant with a debt collector. Uh, we hadn't paid our bill. We, we'd, we'd set a deal out with someone in it. It went a bit sour. We meant to, he, he invested some money into this business with myself and this lad. And the aim was he'd give us a thousand pound where we could buy some stuff and we would turn that to 1500 quid, but it would take a little while. And he, he wanted to start collecting the money after the first week. And I said, well, you can't really start pulling money out of an investment strategy because there's nothing left to invest. He said, but I need 500 quid back. I said, well, then, then you've killed it. This 500 pound won't generate the money you want. So long story short, he, he ended up taking his, his thousand pound back, which was there. 
And he said, you owe me £500. I said, well, no, we don't, because you withdrew your investment way too early. So there's nothing, there is no money. But he wouldn't have it. Now, this is the world of organised crime. Now, he wasn't uh, he wasn't involved in organised crime. He just fancied making some money. But he knew a few people. But there's this character which had been, his name had been banded around the clubs and the bars. He'd never done Dora, but he was always known because he was extremely handy. You, know, you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side with him. You know, and, and I'd heard about him a few times. And my, it was a Sunday night and my phone rang. Didn't recognise the number. I thought, hello, yeah. He said, oh, I know who you are. And, and he started to reel off a few things about me. Told me my address. He said, right, I'm going to, uh, so I keep this clean. So I'm going to come down to your house in a minute. I'm going to chuck in the boot of the car. I'm going to break your legs. I'm going to do your eyes. I'll take you for a ride somewhere. And, and I want my money. I want my money. I want it now. No problem, mate. <laughs> okay, no worries. I spoke to the lad. I said, mate, we are writing it. I said, I've just had so-and-so on the phone and he's, he's not happy. He said, what's he ringing us for? So we owe 500 quid because that idiot you know, pulled out the investment. He said, we're not going to pay. I said, we are going to pay because he's going to come down here and put me in the boot of the car and break my legs. <laughs> I said, we are paying it. We will deal with it afterwards. So he was like kind of, well, all right, fair enough. So we, we have money there from our, our takings from that weekend. It was someone else's money, but well, let's pay the one to shout in the loudest in a minute. So I went down to this, met him in a hotel, met him. He was there with this other guy that we owed the money to and looked up at it. So he gave me, and he said, thank you. And debt was paid, that was it. Wasn't happy with it. But that was kind of the first time I thought, oh, this is, this is different. So this does happen. People do get proper threats and these people do carry it out. So um, me and my business partner decided that we would probably best split because he was willing to accept me getting kidnapped and beaten over 500 quid <laughs> and him not because <laughs> money was lent to me but he was the one that was spending yeah. it so we ended up separating and going our separate ways so during 98 we, we we went our own direction we still lived in the same building we still parted so we decided to do our own separate business so his kind of went that way and mine started going that way same time I met my soon-to-be wife, who's now my ex-wife, um, back in 98. Now, so this is another lie I had to live. She didn't know anything about what I was doing. So I met her. So that kind of changed my direction again. So the sort of 98 was like a weird transition for me. It went from being crazy parties to meeting this person that I thought, I can <coughs> really spend my life with this woman. And... We decided uh, let's let's, yeah, let's let's become a couple. It was the first girlfriend I've had you know, since coming out of the army. The, the girl I left the army with didn't work. That was dead within a within a year. That was done and dusted. So let's meet. Let's let's, let's give it a go. So we kind of really went quite seriously. And so I stopped going out. And she fell pregnant very quickly. Maybe that was me looking for a way out. It was it was planned. It was planned. So I would never say for my oldest son. Yes, you were a planned son. Don't worry. Um, and that was kind of like a saving grace because I stopped when she felt pregnant. She would no longer go out. She, she was never involved in drugs, but she would like to go out and enjoy herself in the club. I stopped going out and clubbing. If I'm not going to go out there and get off my you know, off, off my face on drugs when I've got a pregnant girlfriend yeah, inside yeah. at home, it's just not right. So I stopped going out clubbing. And then the problem that had was, and I got a job because I, I, I've been signed off. So. So from about back in the 96, 
when the surveillance had dried up, I thought well, I'm going to have to do something. We, the, the, the drug money was quite sporadic, so I signed on as well. I mean, benefit fraud, I've sort of broken bigger laws. So I, <laughs> I, um, so I, I signed on and I was unemployed. So I, I wasn't working. So she fell pregnant. I went and got a job within a month, I think. I really sort of, right, come on, let's sort yourself out. It wasn't a great job, but it, it was a job. It was working for a, a textiles company in a, in a van delivering tea towels. And I was happy because it was easy. It was it was it was wasn't taxing in any way. But the problem I found was when I wasn't going out on the weekend taking drugs, I wasn't spending Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday recovering. I was all of a sudden I was my mind had sharpened up, and I was awake. And although the the, the job was providing us with a rent, it wasn't a great wage. It was okay at best. And I was still selling drugs at this point. At this this point now, but our my rate of selling drugs has gone up to maybe about a thousand pills a week. So it increased over those couple of years with my business partner. So what sort of income do you look at? With- Back then, it was it was minimal. It wasn't huge. So if if in the mid nineties we were paying up until about ninety seven, we were paying around about if you buy a thousand, and this is a rough figure, about five pound a pill. So it'd be costing you like it'd be like five grand to take on the thousand, but you'd be settling for something like maybe seven. So you said you're not going to make a huge amount, mm. but that's the risk that you're taking. You know, it, it's not it's not great, and the more you buy, the less you're getting for. But it's same as any other business. It, it was it was enough, but that might take a little a while to get rid of. But if you're selling them in bulk, which you were, you can't sell them for the sort of prices you sell in the clubs. They grow. You might make. 50p only on one or 20p on one and you're thinking I'm, I'm running some big risks here for a fairly small for amount money, of money yeah, yeah. yeah it just didn't didn't weigh up but that was all I knew there, there wasn't anything else really produ- producing an income so um, I was doing my, my delivery job and this then gave me this vehicle which I could suddenly start using <laughs> undercover for delivering my drugs well, this is perfect. This is before GPS trackers. This is in 98, uh, 99. I had that job until 2002. And um, I had the job for so long because it was perfect. It was a perfect cover. So whenever I would go around, and by this point then, I hadn't got involved in, in cocaine. It was still ecstasy, cannabis. I was meeting new people because I was beginning to expand my network slightly and opportunities come, good and bad, good and bad and you begin to sort of build on this this new career of yours and you're meeting people every, literally on a weekly basis you're going out and, and because you're no longer a an end user people that are more serious about selling things are more serious about taking you on board as someone they can okay. supply to because it's not seen you as being reckless or on the front line so your supplies are your, your options are beginning to open a little bit because I was good at making sure I paid my bills and even though I might have been times when I would have been late wouldn't been down to my mistakes, but down to other people, which is my responsibility. Business began to sort of increase, but it wasn't gradual. It was very, very wavy up and down. And um, so again, I existed for probably until about two thousand and two, or back in about one two thousand and two, where I was just remained selling ecstasy. But the money had completely dropped out of the market. A lot of problems in around about eight ninety eight ninety nine supply. Supplies of certain uh, chemicals involved within making up these these pills had become scarce, and new things were coming onto the market, and they were really really cheap, which meant 
the profit margins were so much less. And it was at that point about making money to pay for a family. And mm -hmm. my, or our oldest son was born in 99, but providing for a family now. And, and the only way that I really knew how, and although the, 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 the textiles job was, was providing a bit, it wasn't providing enough. And plus, I wasn't going to walk away from something which could have been potentially, you know, could have been lucrative, although it wasn't at that stage. You're waiting for that big break. And, um, yeah, so we just kept ticking over. And the money had gone down so much, you're literally making pence on, I was buying at times 10,000 pills a week and maybe making about three or 400 pounds. And you think that's still class to class A drug, that still carries a significant sentence for three or 400 pounds. I thought it's just not, it just doesn't yeah. make sense. So during this time, people that have been clubbing, all my customers that have been going out, taking ecstasy, they kind of graduated from this scene on the clubs. They felt they were getting too old for clubbing and dancing. They wanted to go to bars and they started taking cocaine. And I was never interested in selling cocaine because I thought, I knew people selling it and they were always having problems, they're always having headaches, they're always having chasing people around for money all the time because they're selling you know, um, small amounts like grams to people and it's, it seemed like a huge amount of legwork. I've been around when they bought an, an ounce of the stuff and they're weighing it up into individual um, deals and I thought, that's like a lot of hard work. Then again, counting 10,000 pills is quite hard work as well. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> so I thought, I don't want to be doing that. So I thought to myself, I speak to the guy that I used to buy my pills from, he was already then at that point selling cocaine. And I said, look, mate, I've had enough of selling pills. I want to get involved in this, but I don't want to do the bits. I said, you, know, you ever thought about you know, your stuff you're getting? Do you, do you remanufacture it? Do you repress it? Do you adulterate it? To use the correct term for people to understand that. He said, no. I said, well, why don't we? Let's do it. Let's do it properly. He said, all right, okay, I'll make it happen. So he went and did everything. He got all the source the, the the original cocaine all the the necessary equipment that we require to do this and i stepped into that market that one night it was me him another another chap who'd been doing this for a while and he, he showed us how to, to reprocess this to make the magic of one into three where you can increase your margins um you you, you down price things significantly to, to reflect the quality but you you still make more because you've got more of that mm -hmm. to work with Showed, showed us that and thought this is the way forward but I didn't have any customers well what am I doing I don't actually have any customers for this so I started to ring up the people that I knew were involved in biomedics to see anyone you buy your stuff from if they're interested in buying anything give me a shout you know and you're quite open you have to throw yourself out there a little bit and then I got a few calls come in and it took a while and it was very up and down and I was beginning to sell a bit here and there and it was but with it came lots of problems, headaches with that stuff. It was unreal from, from moving from ecstasy, which is quite clubby and party. And that was difficult enough because people were notoriously unreliable for, for payment. Cocaine was totally different. It was just one problem after another. And the people say, oh, I sell drugs, it's easy money. So we'll give it a go. You then tell me how easy it is when you're sat there with you've got people screaming down this phone for their money and you're trying to chase people up who've not even gone out of their bed at three o'clock in the afternoon because they've been doing it since you know it's horrible and it just just remained flat for a while and it stayed like that for a good couple of years and um until about 
05 and it started to slowly increase and my second son was born he was also planned just so you know <laughs> yeah put that one in there um about 05 06 it, it started to show some promise in fact 04 it started to show some promise i started to make some decent money in 04 wow this is great I, you know it was like all this time it had been scratching around and, and all of a sudden there was just money there and it's just, it just like, wow, where did this come from? And you're not talking loads and loads and loads. It was just like a few grand here. And I thought, well, this, this is, okay, so that I can understand what it's about now. I knew where I was going wrong. I was working with the wrong kind of people, working with people that want to be gangsters, people, noisy people. I thought, I've got to find the right people, people who are businessmen. But it's very hard to find people which have got the same mentality that, that you have in, in, in how you Because I'm not a violent, I'm not a violent or aggressive person. But it's full of violent and aggressive people. The whole world, the whole the whole industry is is notorious for it. So you've got to really sort of nitpick your way through these these vicious characters to find this sort of like glimmering character. You think, wow, these are the right people to work with. Then you find them, and you hope they can be trusted because they 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 portray that they can be trusted. They portray that these they're these decent people. They aren't always. So eventually, you start building this new portfolio of people that can be relied on, and you start making a little bit of money. Until it all goes wrong. That's when the book comes into this stage in my life where something goes catastrophically wrong. I end up with this ridiculously huge debt of like you know, about 80 grand. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's like a small flat, isn't it, back then? <laughs> <laughs> because everything you buy on, in, in volume is bought on, on credit. I'm afraid that's all we got time for today, but please remember to tune in again for part two. 